If you have your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. We're going back to Genesis chapter 2 and continuing our study in the book of Genesis. One of the things I enjoy about a study of a book like Genesis is the fact that so many of the biblical doctrines that we see in Scripture find their foundation, their beginning right here in the book of Genesis. Last week we talked about the issue of rest and taking a Sabbath rest. And today we're going to be talking about the concept of biblical marriage. Now I want to tell you that I know not everyone here is married, has a spouse. Maybe you're a widow. Maybe you are not married now. Maybe you've never been married. So I want you to hang with me because you're going to be able to apply this to your life as well. But I am going to spend a significant amount of time talking to couples, to husbands and wives, as well as those who are preparing themselves for marriage. Because in every generation, there is a wide gap between the biblical view of marriage and the human view of marriage. The gap is more like a chasm. It is gargantuan between what the Bible teaches and what we tend to believe. We live in a world where we are constantly redefining morals and values and ethics, and none has taken a harder hit, I believe, in these days than the issue of marriage. But it's not just our generation. In Jesus' day, they did not understand the depth and the meaning of what biblical marriage really was. You'll remember in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus was talking about marriage and divorce and these kinds of issues. And they were so struck by it that in verse 10 of chapter 19, his own disciples said to him, if the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. So even in those days when they heard what God's standard, what God's idea and model was for marriage, they felt like that it was perhaps not even a good thing. Well, then we fast forward 2,000 more years and we look at the world we live in today a world where our main idol is self, where our main doctrine is autonomy, where our main worship is entertainment, where our main shrines are the internet and Hollywood, and where the most sacred act is uninhibited physical intercourse with other people. We live in a world where the idea and the concept of marriage is almost ludicrous. So I come with an assumption that all of us, even we as Christians, come from a perspective because of our own sin and because of the culture of sin that we live in, that it is almost impossible for us to truly understand the depth and the meaning of biblical marriage without the help of the Holy Spirit. And so my hope is that in these next few moments, you will open your minds and your hearts to hear and to understand. Let the Holy Spirit, through His Word, help us to have a much deeper understanding of what, about what biblical marriage really is than you probably, maybe in some cases, have ever had before. I do know one thing. The lost world will never be able to understand the concept of biblical marriage until they see it in the lives of of those of us who call themselves Christians. So we need to understand what biblical marriage is so that we then can model it out into a lost world. So in the passage before us, the passage that we read just a few moments ago, we have basically two overarching truths. The foundation of biblical marriage is God's design. And secondly, the purpose of biblical marriage is God's glory. 
In other words, the foundation of marriage, as is defined in the Bible, is not our design, our plan. It is God's design. And the purpose of biblical marriage is not to make us happy, not to give us companionship. It is to bring God glory. And we're going to look at those two things and then finish by why it's so important that we not only understand those things, but live out those principles. Let's begin looking at verse 18. In these verses, we see what God does so often with His children. There's a problem, there is a need, and then God supplies that need. Well, what was the need in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18? Well, let's find it. It says here that the Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone. God recognized that it was not good for Adam to not have a counterpart. Now, this hits us right in the face because all through chapter 1, we've heard every day, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. And at the very end, it says it was very good. And now, all of a sudden, in chapter 2, verse 18, God says, wait, it is not good for the man to be alone. God recognized that this was a need in Adam's life. Now, I want to make sure you understand, this is not Adam going to God saying, oh, excuse me, God, I'm, I'm afraid you may have forgotten something. I, I need a partner. You know, I see the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees, and, and, and I'd like another one like me. Adam didn't even recognize his need yet, but God knew it. And so God said, I will make for him a helper suitable or to compliment him. Now, ladies, I want to make sure you understand this right from the start. This word helper is not some kind of hierarchical system where the man is the leader and the woman is the helper. The man is in charge and the woman is the assistant. Let me tell you something. The only other figure in all of the Old Testament that is referred to as a helper. Do you know who it is? It's God himself. Moses said that God is my helper. Isaiah said God is my helper. God himself said I will be your helper. You see, in the biblical terminology, a helper is not an assistant. A helper is someone that comes along and does for someone what they cannot do for themselves. And so God said, I will be your helper, Moses. You cannot do this on your own. You cannot do this without me. I will be your helper. Let me tell you, ladies, if it does anything, it elevates your role because you are a complement. You are a counterpart. You are a partner. And men and women are created by God to work together. One of the commentators that I read referred to it as being a counterpartner because you both fulfill each other's needs and you do it together in partnership. So God resolved that he was going to solve this problem for Adam. But first he had to make sure Adam understood what his need was. So it says in verse 19, So the Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. Now, I thought God had already created them. Well, these animals were probably the ones that were in the Garden of Eden. And so God began bringing these animals to Adam to remind him that he has control over them. And he gives them different names. And this is not just some zoological exercise. This is God's way of helping Adam see that in all of these various creatures, as beautiful as they are, strong, sleek, fast, small, crafty, none of them could be a helper to him. None of them could fill the gap in his life that needed to be filled. So God sees Adam's need, and then he decides that he will bring the supply. How does he supply Adam's need? Well, we find that in verse 20. Actually, excuse me, verse 21. It says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. And God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to 
the man. So God puts Adam to sleep and does divine surgery on him. This is the same kind of sleep that we see that God did to Abraham when God brought the covenant. It says that Abraham fell into a deep sleep. So Adam is sleeping because God needs to work in private and do his miracles when no one is watching. And so while Adam sleeps, God takes one of his ribs. And yes, we men have the same number of ribs that you women do. Adam died with one less, but all the rest of them can count all of ours. We've got our ribs. But God took that part of Adam's body, and I think it was very specific, and there was a reason why. You see, Adam had not been created out of nothing. He'd been created from the dirt. And Eve also was not created out of nothing. She was created out of a part of the man to show this wonderful, intimate relationship that the two of them would have with one another. He was part of her, part of his flesh, part of his bone, part of his life, part of his DNA, and God took this bone, moist still with Adam's body fluids and, and, and full of marrow, and forms that bone into a woman and brings her to Adam. She is more than just another creature. She is a part of him. And that speaks volumes to what biblical marriage looks like in our lives that God brings a man and a woman together and they recognize emptinesses in themselves that only their spouses can fill. This is God's design. This is the foundation of a biblical marriage. And look what Adam says in response to that. It says, he brought the woman to the man and the man said in verse 23, this one at last, the word in the Hebrew is the equivalent of our word, aha, finally, eureka, at last, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman because she was taken from man. Now, Adam giving her that name does not mean that he has control over her. When he was naming the other animals, he was identifying them. In this case, he is showing her character. Matter of fact, the word woman is isha in the Hebrew. And the word for man is ish. And so the name for man, Ish, is planted inside the name Isha to show that there is a linkage between them. This is not just some other creature. This is not just some other species. This is not just some other animal that God has created. This is a part of himself. And he exclaims in joy and satisfaction over what God has done. So you see, the whole foundation of biblical marriage is God's design. Do you notice how many action verbs are in those verses? All of it starting with the word God. Let's just look over them very quickly. Just starting at verse 18. The Lord God said, I will make. The Lord God formed. Uh, then you go down to verse 21. The Lord God caused a deep sleep. God took one of his ribs, closed the flesh, made the rib into a woman, brought her to the man. All of these things are things that God did. God is the designer of biblical marriage. And that is the first truth that we need to make sure we understand from our passage before us today, is that the foundation of biblical marriage is God's design, not ours. We do not have the right to determine what a marriage will and will not be. We do not have the permission to design our own form of what we think a marriage should look like. Marriage is God's design. It is God's plan. But if the foundation is God's design, what is the ultimate purpose of marriage? Now, this is going to get a little bit more mysterious because the purpose of God's mar of marriage, biblical marriage, is God's glory. 
Now, I don't know what you think about marriage. I'm sure that we, some of us think that, oh, God created marriage so that we could procreate. We could continue to multiply and fill the earth. Well, that is part of the purpose. God's purpose for marriage was so we could have companionship. That is part of marriage. But ultimately, the primary, ultimate goal of marriage, the purpose of biblical marriage is God's glory. And we really will only understand that when we compare what we read in verse 24 of chapter 2 of Genesis with what we read in Galatians chapter 5. So I tell you what, while I'm giving you some intro, why don't you go ahead and turn over in your Bible to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 31 and 32 in just a minute. But while you're turning there, let me just paint a little bit of background for you. In Genesis 2, 24, the man said, uh, verse 24, it says, This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. There is this unique union, this unique covenant, this unique relationship between a man and a woman bound together. The old King James says they cleave, which means they literally come together as if they were one. Even though they are separate, they're also one. But the question is, what kind of union will this be? How will it be held together? Uh, can they walk away from the covenant? Uh, can they move from one spouse to another whenever they want? Is this relationship rooted in romance? Is it rooted in sexual desire or, or companionship or cultural convenience? No, there's more to it than that. When he talks about the fact that they will come together and they will be one flesh, one entity. It's talking about this wonderful covenant relationship. And we infer that from what is said in Genesis 2, but we learn about it even more when we read Galatians chapter 5. Because in Galatians chapter 5, Paul quotes Genesis 2, 24. Look down there at verse 31 of Galatians 5. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then look at verse 32. This mystery, Paul says, is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. You say, well, that's not all that profound. The relationship we have with Christ is modeled on marriage. We have this marriage, this biblical marriage, a man who leaves his father, we under Jesus left his father and married, and, and then now the church, the relationship with the church to Christ is modeled after marriage, right? Oh, no, no, no. You've got it just backwards. Marriage was modeled after the relationship of Christ and the church. You say, well, wait, 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 wait. See, our problem is we think chronologically. We see this marriage taking place in the Garden of Eden thousands of years before Jesus Christ came. So since it came first, it must be the predecessor. But we forget the mind of God. God knew in eternity past exactly what the relationship that he was going to have with his people through his son. He knew exactly what their relationship was going to be. He knew exactly how his son was going to love his bride, the church. And so he said, I'm going to create a human institution that will be modeled after the relationship my son will have with my people. And so the church and Christ is not modeled after marriage, beloved. Marriage is modeled after Christ and the church. That's the mystery. And that's why the purpose of marriage is to show forth God's glory as they see and as we show through our marriages 
what the relationship is between Christ and his church. And so when we think about our marriages, we recognize that the foundation is God's design. He brings us together. We are not complete without one another. Maybe some of you have forgotten that. You're going to have a chance to remind yourself of that in just a couple of minutes. But we are not complete. I am not complete without Sharon. Sharon completes me. She helps fill in the gaps in my life. And this is by God's plan and God's design. And the purpose of our marriage beyond everything else is to bring God glory so that we will be able to be a living example of Christ's relationship to his church. And that is why it is so important that we understand this principle from this passage of Scripture in Genesis chapter 2, and that we live it out in our day-to-day lives. Because when we denigrate, when we cheapen, when we lessen the value of our marriages, we're not just hurting our spouses, we're not just hurting our children, we are besmirching the name of Christ himself. We are belittling the value of the relationship between Christ and his church by our actions And so it's very important that we understand why we must honor our covenant. And i got to tell you, the best way to do that is to look at the last verse of our passage for today. One that we almost zip right past, except maybe with a little bit of a blush. When it says in verse 25, Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Hmm. Why in the world did they add that verse to the end of the chapter? Some folks say, well, it's just a link to chapter 3. Well, it is a link to chapter 3. We see the difference between the way they were before sin and the way they were after sin. But I think it tells us a whole lot more. Because it says that these two people lived in a relationship without shame. Well, why? Why didn't they have any shame? Why were they not embarrassed to be running around naked as a jaybird? Well, maybe it's because they were perfect. They were physically perfect. There was absolutely nothing in them that would be cause for any ridicule and criticism. You think that's why? I don't think so. I'll tell you why. For one thing, I don't care how perfect a person may be, how beautiful, how handsome. If a person has a mean spirit, if they are unkind, if they are caustic and troublesome, they can still make that perfectly figured person feel demeaned and and, and low and of no value. And also, I think it's important to understand that verse 25 flows out of verse 24. The man and the woman come together in a covenant relationship and they become one flesh and they become one body. They become one unit. And so they're able to walk together and not be ashamed. You see, the reason I believe that they were able to walk together and not be ashamed is because they lived in the full beauty of the covenant relationship that they had with each other. They trusted each other completely. And they would forgive each other. Now, obviously, this happens before sin comes into the world. So at this point, there was nothing to forgive. But that was God's design. God's plan was that they would come together in this sense of absolute loving trust and forgiveness and caring and nurturing and ministering to one another. So verse 24 and the concept of the covenant leads into verse 25 that says that they had no shame. You see... This is the model for how Christ treats his church. Is he blind to our sin? Of course he isn't. Does he pretend like it doesn't happen? No, he doesn't. 
But instead, he lovingly forgives us and walks with us, even though we may wander far away from him in our marriage relationship to Christ. He continues to be loving and forgiving. That's why the doctrine of justification is so important, not just to our salvation, but also to our family life, that we can love and forgive one another for the realities of our sin. So let's back up and talk about it. We've got to talk a little bit about chapter 3 in order to fully understand this concept. Back in verse 17 of chapter 2, God had told the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, I believe that that concept of the knowledge of good and evil was their ability to make their own choices as to what they wanted for themselves without taking God into account. God would say, listen, let me be in charge. You just trust me. Let me guide you. You don't need to take these things on your own. I will be able to guide you and lovingly care for you. But then we get down into chapter 3, and sure enough, that's exactly what Eve does. If you look at chapter 3, and we begin, say, at verse 5, it says uh, Satan now is talking to Eve. He says, in fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw the tree was good for food and life to look at it, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom, so she took some of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. You see exactly what God told them not to do. Now all of a sudden they make their own decision based on what they think is the right thing to do. Eve looks at the tree. It looks good for fruit. She desires to be wise. She wants to know more so that she can make her own decisions, put herself on the throne and be her own God instead of Jehovah God being her God. And so she takes the fruit. And look what happens in verse 7. In verse 7 it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. Chapter 2, verse 25, no shame. Chapter 3, verse 7, now suddenly there's shame. Why? Why suddenly is there shame? What made the change? The change came because the foundation of that covenant of love and trust was destroyed. And what is that foundation? That foundation is our relationship with God. Living and loving Him, living in obedience to Him, allowing Him to be in control of our lives. And instead, what happened was they decided they would be their own masters. They would be their own gods. They would make their own decisions. And so their relationship with God was broken. And immediately they see it in their relationship with each other in two ways. And here's what's so cool about this. These two ways are the exact same things that bring couples into trouble today. Let me show you. One, the first thing was Adam looks at Eve and says, hmm, now she knows good from evil and she can make her own decisions and she is going to be her own God and she's going to live by her own rules and she's going to make her own decisions and she's going to decide for herself what she thinks is good or bad. I'm not sure I can trust her. I'm going to have to keep a distance from her because she could hurt me because God would never allow her to. But now that she's making her own decisions, she could say things that would hurt me. She could do things that would hurt me. And so I have to distance myself from her. And at the same time, Adam looked at himself and said, but I'm sinful too. I've turned away from God. I made myself my own God. And maybe the way it came out in Adam was he, he felt guilt and shame. He felt unworthy. He felt unclean because of that. And so here are these two things that happen in our relationships when our relationship with God was broken. First of all, we don't trust. I can tell you, and Sharon knows this, I have shared with her that I was going to share this with you. For years, I kept secrets from Sharon. If I bounced a check, I didn't want her to know. If I forgot to make a payment, I didn't want her to know. If I 
was tempted to look passingly at a, another woman, I wouldn't dare tell her because I didn't trust her. I didn't trust that her love for me would not be changed by my sin. And so I hid, and I kept myself from her, and I was ashamed of myself. And we do that all the time. We live these lives where we are frightened. We don't trust because the other person is a sinner. And then we remember, but so am I. And suddenly we're filled with guilt, and we're filled with shame, and we're filled with remorse. And so what do we do? We do exactly what Adam and Eve did. We sew together camo. You realize this is the first camo in the world. They sewed together fig leaves so they could hide in the bushes and not be seen. They were hiding because they did not want to truly be seen for what they were. They wanted to appear to be something different. I know I have sinned. I know I'm bad. I know I'm unworthy. And so what I do is how do I make up for that? I overdo. I'm overly harsh with my boys. I'm overly sharp to Sharon when I talk to her. I'm overly unkind with other people because of my sinfulness. And I distance myself from people because I can't trust them. And that's exactly what we do. And we build these clothes of leaves to try and hide and cover. But what does God do? God says, oh, no, 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 no. And God creates a new kind of clothing for them. So you say, so did God agree with them? They needed to hide? No, no. These clothes are not the clothes of concealment. These are the clothes of confession. Because you see, an animal had to give his life. An innocent victim had to die so that they could be covered. Not so they could conceal their sin, but to remind them of their sin. And you see, this is what we must have in our lives, in our marriages. We must come back to the understanding that number one, our marriage, the very foundation of our relationship as husband and wife is built by God's design, not ours. You can never say, I wonder if I made a mistake. If you prayerfully sought God's will and God brought you your spouse and you say, well, I really didn't pray ahead of time. You know what? It doesn't matter. Once they're yours, they're yours. And God says, if you will just trust me, I will walk with you. I will guide you. I will help you to grow in love and companionship with that other person. And so we have to acknowledge that it's his design, and then we have to understand that it is ultimately for his glory. And the way that we show him glory is not by concealing our sin from our spouses and from God, but by confessing our sin to our spouses. To sit down and say, I was wrong when I snapped at you. Yes, I was tired from a day of work. Yes, I was struggling, but I was wrong. It was my sin. Please forgive me. And then the relationship begins to be built, learning to trust one another, learning to confess to one another, learning to care for one another. And so here's what I want you to do right now. I hope that most of you, if you have your spouse here at church with you, are sitting next to them. If not, you may have to get up and go sit down next to them, and I'll talk to you later about why you weren't sitting next to your spouse to start with, but that's okay. I want you to turn to your spouse right now, right now, just go ahead and do it right now, and look her right in the eye, guys. Look her right in the eye. And I want you to say to her, I am not complete without you. Just go ahead, say it right now. I am not complete without you. All right, now wait, wait, wait. Keep, keep looking, keep looking at her. I want you to look dead into her eyes, capture her vision, and say it to her again. I am not complete without you. Now, if you're not holding hands by now, you probably ought to be. So, Grab her hands, smile, a big smile, guys, and say one more time to her. Say it with me. 
I am not complete without you. Now, ladies, it's your turn. He's holding your hands. He's looking into your eyes. No, you can't grab a Kleenex yet. Look into your husband's eyes and say to him, I am not complete without you. Smile at him. Look deep into his eyes. All of his uncertainty, all of his guilt, and say to him again, I am not complete without you. Now, one more time. Look him in the eye. Smile real big and say to him, say it with me, I am not complete without you. You see, beloved, this is where it starts, recognizing that we are counterpartners, okay? That's my new word for today. We are counterparts and partners with one another. And we are not complete without each other. But now there's the second part. There are some things that we need to confess to our spouses, may not be big, gross, heinous sins. Maybe it is. It may just be, honey, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me for being short-tempered yesterday. Forgive me for what I said. Honey, I'm sorry that I responded negatively or I responded sharply or I responded sarcastically to you. It was out of my own pride. Please forgive me. So what we're going to do is we're going to have prayer together. And after we pray, I want to invite you as a couple to either sit right where you are. If you're here in the sanctuary to come forward, you may want to kneel together as a couple. If you're at the beacon, over to your right, there's some pairs of chairs over there, kind of by the sound booth. And you can sit down in one of those pairs of chairs and just talk together. Ask each other for forgiveness and then pray together. So while we sing after this prayer, you do that. Let's bow our heads together. Would you join me as we pray? Father, thank you so much for laying this biblical foundation for marriage in your word. Thank you for reminding us that marriage is about you. It's not about us. And thank you for reminding us that marriage ultimately is not for our pleasure, our satisfaction, or our comfort. It is for your glory. Father, we want to model in our marriages the picture of Jesus and his church. None of us is worthy of that, but with your help, I believe we can do that. So, Father, as we sing now, some of us are going to be going to share and confess with one another, pray for each other. I ask that you would guide, for it's in Jesus' name that I ask these things.